0: Over the years, Hollywood has taken multiple attempts to portray the vivid scene of Jesus' crucifixion, um, and specifically, the Passion of the Christ. This is a series of events that starts with the Garden of Gethsemane and goes all the way to the trials and the beatings and the cross, and then ultimately the tomb and resurrection, that called the Passion of the Christ. That same title, uh, uh, there was a movie that came out in 2004. You may have heard of it, The Passion of the Christ. Mel Gibson directed it, and um, at least from what I've seen, I haven't seen all of the Jesus movies, but it shows a rated-R grotesque depiction of probably most closely what it was physically like for Jesus in reality. Um, The actor Jim Caviezel, who played Jesus, actually came to know some of the suffering of Jesus while on set. Uh, While on set, he got pneumonia as well as hypothermia, and also uh, whenever he was uh, being whipped in the scene uh, with Pilate's um, uh, court, uh, he was supposed to be wearing this protective suit, and he was, uh, that would take the brunt of all of the whipping, but somehow one little piece of metal made its way through and gave him a 14-inch gash right down his back, knocked the wind right out of him. Uh, That's not all. Uh, While he was also carrying the cross— and then his cross actually weighed 150 pounds, his footing slipped. He dislocated his shoulder upon landing into the ground, and the cross fell on his head, almost crushing his head into the ground. He dealt with persistent migraines for the rest of the shooting. And that's not all. Later, on production, uh, he and another production assistant were both struck by lightning. Yeah, yeah. I know that if I was the actor or the director, I'd be having second thoughts somewhere between half of those events if we should continue filming. But, anyways, as we look at our passage today and this depiction of Jesus' suffering on the cross, I want us to immediately note one thing. The physical brutality of the cross, as excruciating as it was, is not even the worst part of what Christ willingly endured. For our sake. Without diminishing, not about that, not, without diminishing Christ's suffering, I want us to challenge this morning uh, to take a more uh, complete look at all of what Christ endured for us. Jesus didn't come just to die the most brutal death possible, though some people think that this is a pretty strong contender. Uh, instead, it was so that he who came from heaven a new eternal comfort with the Father would enter into suffering here on earth so that he could deliver us from eternal suffering and so that we could experience eternal comfort with the Father. It was also so that we, here and now, would know a little bit more about what it means to bear our own cross and follow him. But after all, Jesus asked each of us, yes, each of us in this room even, to deny himself, to pick up our cross, and to follow him. So with the time at hand, I want to help us answer the question, how can I carry the cross meant for me? And also, maybe you're wondering, what is my cross, and why do I carry one? If Jesus also carries one, this will soon become clear. But first, we need to see how, in a more complete view, of how Jesus carries his cross. And also, looking past the spectacle of the blood and the gore, why he carried it and also then we'll find our part in following him. So how did Jesus carry his cross? First point here, Jesus surrenders everything for us. Our passage in Matthew actually jumps right into the middle of the action here at verse 32. Already Jesus has been kept awake throughout most of the night, escorted from trial to trial and beat at each one and humiliated. He's sentenced finally to death by crucifixion and he's to march outside the city carrying his cross where he will be executed. The Romans, they waste no time in turning this procession into as much of a mockery as they can. Quickly, a battalion, 600 soldiers put on a parade, or what historians actually call a Roman triumph where Roman generals, when they came back from war, a victorious campaign, or a big battle, they would march through the streets with their shiny, clean armor and prove themselves that they are the conquering people. They would also then be met with crowds cheering and cheering, all sorts of things. This practice actually dates all the way back to Alexander the Great, and one of the more recent renditions of it was Hitler when he conquered Paris, marched his own Roman triumph through the city streets in World War II. This is an effective means of reminding everybody who's top dog, who's really in control. And the Romans are doing it in a mocking sense to Jesus to let Jesus's followers know who's really in control. As the procession moves forward, their messaging is clear. They're going to give Jesus the kingly treatment, cover him in a robe, give him a crown of thorns, And if word were ever to get back to Rome, how they dealt with that rebel, Jesus, they could tell them, well, we gave him a robe and a crown of thorns and a cross-shaped throne. We don't know how far Jesus walked until he needed help. At some point along the way, his exhaustion, being humiliated, was crippled by the sheer force required to move that cross, they enlisted a man, Simon the Serene, to help him carry if he was willing or not, the image alone is striking. Someone there helping Jesus. This is probably one of the last acts of kindness that's given to him as he's marching up. And this was all, so that way the show would go on. And Jesus knew that this show would come. Jesus willingly knew that this is what would happen. He foresaw it. And not only that, he would endure every minute of it, really, And truly, Jesus here allows both his body and his dignity to be torn to shreds. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you found yourself humiliated, maybe at work or school, or maybe within some sort of family situation. Maybe you've been bullied. Jesus actually knows what it's like to endure that, to have people laughing, people wagging their heads, looking at you. Jesus not only knows that as just an observer from heaven, but he came in the flesh and endured that. So when we carry our praise to him and ask for help, he's not someone who can't sympathize. Jesus knows. Moving on here, what's even worse, worse than all of the mocking is probably from where it comes next in our passage. Now hanging on the cross and having undrinkable, rancid wine put in his face, he hears the words of his own Jewish brethren, those walking by and the the religious authorities, and they offer no comfort. Instead, they shout the words that he uses in his own ministry, the things that people said about him. And also, they shouted the very words of Scripture. Some words, even the same words of David's own enemies that he records that were shouted at him in his Psalms. Now, the irony of this situation is incredible. that They would have the gall to do that and basically put on the act of David's enemies knowingly. And the religious authorities who were doing this which we'll later see and read. They knew what they were doing. They're some of the best biblical minds of all time due to their education and so on and so forth. Nevertheless, this is downright satanic. If you remember Jesus's own temptation in the wilderness, Satan came to Jesus with the words of scripture, asking him to give up the plan in a number of ways. So the same we see here with the religious authorities saying the words of Scripture to Jesus, asking him to save himself, to call it all off, just to stop, prove yourself. We'll recognize that you're the son of God. And that would work. If angels were to come, which Jesus had the full ability to call, it would prove to everyone there that, yeah, this is really somebody special. He wouldn't do it. Years ago, maybe back in high school, I would have not have believed that religious people could be so evil. (laughs) Now I'm a little older and wiser, and unfortunately I don't believe that anymore. I've had too many friends who have shared with me stories of being hurt, of being betrayed, and they're jaded and scarred. They did not experience the rescuing love of Christ, that love that sets out no matter what for an, another person's well-being. Instead, my friends, were they were given a sinful, twisted version of Christ's love. Religious people can be as equally hurtful and wrongful as the next person. They have just as many teeth, and they can still bite. But later, in our passage, we'll see that's not the only type of religious person. There are faithful followers of Christ who not only know not to join in, but to help, to care for the wounded. They don't add to the body count, unlike the corrupt, but they work to revive. The Bible has a name for this type of corruption that happens in religious corruption specifically. It's called spiritual blindness. And when someone is accused of being spiritually blind, most often they are a religious person. When the nation of Israel fell um, in the days of the Israelite kings, days and days and years and years before, God gave Isaiah a vision of what would happen, of what was to come. And he took Isaiah into the throne room and he told him to go out and preach to the deaf and the blind. It's a hard audience for sure. And he said that they will not hear you And then when Jesus, in his own ministry, goes out and quotes Isaiah, some of the same things that Isaiah was preaching, he too speaks to a deaf and blind audience of a spiritual nature. They don't recognize him, they don't see him, and they don't even want to see him. And this spiritual blindness of the people there at the the foot of the cross, it's the same sort of blindness that even happens today, and that we can fall into the habit of even at times. It's, it's, it's just as prevalent, and it happens when we put something on par with God, be it a desire, an action, a movement, whatever it may be, it's something that's equally just, sacred, and holy. And what we'll do is we'll take Jesus's name, or maybe even words of the Bible, and we'll hold it right next to whatever it is that we want to justify. And in doing so, we objectify Jesus. Jesus becomes a tool to an end that does not end in his kingdom, and it is not something that won't even make it into his kingdom. It's less than, it's not worth him, but in spiritual blindness, it's just the same. And then it becomes confused for the Savior altogether. For people passing by the cross, their own self-righteousness is blinding them, but among other things, Also, we see today our own list of idols continues to go on and on and on, and we could stay stay here all day. Nevertheless, Jesus in this moment is the recipient of a most sinister form of religious abuse. Along with this, Jesus as a Jew, he faces bitter betrayal of his own people usually in minority cultures, especially ones that are operating under bigger majority cultures or whatever it may be, they look out for each other by blood, by creed. I got your back because you know what it's like. You know the cultural confusions that happen, the, what I have to put up with, and it's the same for the Jewish people. They weren't the majority culture in their area. It was under the Roman rule and the many, many other Greek cultures of the day. But Jesus here is hearing words of his own brother's and his own sisters. This is a, a cultural treason for such a, a tight knit culture, and they're doing it not just for to plead, uh, please religious people. They're doing this so that they can please the majority culture, the Romans. And so, for Jesus's lived experience here at the cross, he faces another type of suffering altogether. We could go further and outline each and every way that Jesus was betrayed. Again, the day could go on. But by this point, Jesus has emptied himself, and people have emptied themselves of him. He only has one disciple left out of 12. They are by his side. And in the last few hours, having experienced all that he has experienced, he very well knew this would come. He very well knew that he would have to one day leave the comforts of heaven for this. And not just for this, but for you and for me. What baffles me is that Jesus has every resource to stop this, to end the charade. But this is important. Torture alone would not atone for the sin of the world. He needed to go further. And this is where it gets much much worse for Jesus. Second point here, Jesus becomes forsaken by the Father. Read with me here in Matthew 27, verse 45. Looking at Matthew 27, verse 45, we have here, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over, a land, over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lima me sabachthani? That's Aramaic for my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders there, hearing it, said, This man's calling Elijah. Now, scripture tells us about noon, our time, ninth hour for them, that Jesus says something shocking and it kind of confuses the crowd. Our English translations clear it up for us. Uh, They took the Aramaic Eli, Eli to mean a short name for Elijah. But his statement there records is that this cry that Jesus has, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This statement itself comes from a deep, deep part of what Jesus has known ever since eternity past. And that's the union with the Father, a perfect union, one that even in our best days of the best Christians that we know don't quite clearly have awareness of. But Jesus knew it, and at this moment, he knows it's loss, it's a deep cry of grief that comes suddenly, and it's despair. Jesus feels forsaken by the Father, and he, and he feels this because he actually is. This is what scripture tells us, 2 Corinthians 5.21, I'll read it for you here. For our sake, he made him who, uh, he made him to be sin, that's Jesus, who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's in this moment that Jesus actually takes on the full weight of the world's sin, both world past and world present and world future, all sin, he takes it on and he bears it. And so Galatians says, he becomes cursed for us, for as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, here meaning the cross. Because the father cannot welcome the weight of the world's sin, being holy as he is, into his presence, Jesus is separated from him at this moment. This is the worst of the worst that can possibly be felt. And Jesus is feeling it here in full. This he willingly endured, so that way you and I Never have to feel this in eternity. Amen. Jesus' cry, though, it has a double meaning here. and We're going to quickly fly through uh, Psalm 22. Uh, this is actually what Jesus quotes in his moment of weakness. He quotes scripture. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so this psalm is actually written by David and Throughout history, the church has come to call this actually the psalm of the cross. Because many scenes in this psalm are the same very scenes that are repeated hundreds of years later at the event of Jesus' crucifixion. Um, The fact that Jesus, in his darkest moment, points us to this psalm uh, is, is no small thing. For while it begins with these words of despair, it actually ends with brilliant hope. Uh, Bible scholars are uh, divided on how actually this psalm came to be. That's, That's how and why David composed it. Some say this event happened in David's life. It just, what's mentioned doesn't seem to fit with anything that we know of David, but it still could have happened, maybe. Other scholars say, no, 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 this is actually a vision of the cross that's granted David. And so he writes a psalm about it. We're going to look at some of this together here. Uh, um, and, be, and regardless of how this came to be, uh, to be, what's amazing is, you know, it matches so much of the cross. And if you're, if you're wrestling with doubt, maybe you're watching online and you don't know much about the Christian faith or anything, I encourage you to study this with us because uh, this, along with an, a whole other host of evidence, uh, I think proves the validity of the faith but Psalm 22 opens with these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? I I think the poet that David is hits the nail on the head with the words groaning here. And In Hebrew, it means this this deep utterance from the soul. Uh, It's it's not because the drive-through line got your your, your, your burger order wrong, that um, what a burger? Like Eric, you know what I'm talking about. Um, it's not because you have to cancel your vacation plans or your kid uh, got a C instead of an A that you are working on him with. This is a deep, deep loss. And here, David depicts this gnawing feeling of God's absence from him in his own time of trouble. And to him, it feels like God's just not going to be able to intervene or has no interest in intervening anytime soon. Uh, Verse 16, go to the next slide here, uh, is another verse that actually matches up really well with the cross. Kind of using this metaphorical picture of dogs, David says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. That last line, pierced my hands and feet, is truly astounding. Given that crucifixion, we don't have a record of it in David's day. They did other forms of torture, but not this specifically. We read in Matthew, uh, and when they mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And as foretold uh, in another verse in the Psalm, verse 18, it happens again, it's exactly as stated. It says, uh, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And then in Matthew, of course we've read it already, when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Now, again, this is utterly humiliating, demoralizing. There you are on the cross, and you're not even dead yet, and they're already fighting over your possessions in front of you, not even doing the decency of waiting until they get back to the barracks or anything like that. Jesus is right there experiencing this. Uh, David also depicts the same mocking tone in this moment of oppression, um, in the actions of of Jesus's enemies. Uh, He says here in verse 7 of the psalm, all who seek me mock me. Uh, They mock, uh, they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And of course, Matthew again captures the same action, but this, he says, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. The psalm again captures other moments that are not included in Matthew. Here's just one. uh, He says in verse 15, my strength is dried up like A potsherd, like a piece of pottery. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And here in this moment, David is seeing just this grim, no hope moment. And he describes it being dried up like clay, having been emptied of every ounce of moisture. And in John 19, we read, I thirst. If you remember that I mentioned that religious leaders quoted scripture at Jesus, even the mocking words of David's own enemies, here it is. He says in verse 8, He trusts in the Lord. This is what David's hearing from his enemies. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And while these words are good words, you put them like on a t-shirt or something, they come from the mouths of the enemies, and it's the context in which they're said which give their painful sting. And Matthew records this out of the mouths of the religious leaders there, saying here in verse 43 of Matthew, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, for if he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. Grace Church, do you see that you have a Savior who is tempted and tried Do you see that he's been through the lowest of lows and has emptied himself and knows firsthand what it is to live and die for and inside of a broken world? This is the rescuing love of Christ. It does not flinch. It accompanies. It is not afraid of what can happen. It simply fights on. It does not care what people think or say or do. It simply accomplishes and goes the distance and multiplies God's praise. Grace Church, this is the steadfast love of Christ and it moves and puts on the suffering that we feel and should have felt. He did all of this willingly and he felt it palpably in his own Flesh. So far, the psalm in our passage and in Matthew uh, is pretty grim. Uh, the first half David complains to the Lord in uh, the verses we didn't read, and he's basically appealing to God saying, "Hey, I'm a member of your covenanted people. You saved us in the past. You kind of, you kind of work in this area for us, this whole rescuing business. I could really use that right now, but I don't think you're going to. This doesn't make sense. It's my paraphrase. But David says this, and he'd be correct in his emotional outburst if this was the extent of his experience, if this was the extent of God's plan for him. And so saying when Jesus is hanging on the cross, Jesus carrying that same emotional outburst of feeling the loss of the father knows what is to come three days later when he rises from the dead. The last line of David's psalm, I want us to look at this. Uh, This is verse 31. And by this point, it's already taken this beautiful, hopeful turn. Um, But here it ends, and it says, They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That's us. And that he has done it. And as Jesus dies, John records the last words of Jesus it is finished. Matthew writes for us at this moment that Jesus cries out with a loud voice and he yields his spirit. And by this, we're assured that Jesus was still in there. He could willingly give up his life. It's his final act of sovereignty for you and for me. Uh, Now, the reason that we know that Christ's plan worked and that all of the suffering uh, was not in vain, and that our sins were actually truly taken care of, with what in the moment that it follows next. Our third point here, through his death, we are adopted and freely given with God. And after Jesus's death, God performs a number of signs. And Matthew records some of them here. And these signs actually valid, uh, validate that transaction. It's a whole other third party, the father himself, who is saying, yes, it worked. And these signs tell us that. Um, earlier uh, in the passage, it mentions darkness overtaking the land Uh, what was a sunny day. And then now in Matthew tells us in verse 51 that the temple curtain that stood in the temple between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the, the chambers, it was torn in two and get this from top to bottom. No one would be up there to pull down on it. And even if they could, the curtain was too thick. But let's talk a little bit about this curtain because here it really certifies this stamp of approval from the father that Jesus's sacrifice is sufficient. Uh, The curtain, again, stood between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the the temple uh, chambers. Uh, This was a ritually pure place. Only one person could go in once a year under certain circumstances. They had to do all of the rites, and then they would offer, uh, uh, it was a priest who would offer prayers uh, intercessing for the nation. This place had to be kept pure, and if he was unclean, then God had the right to strike him down dead there in the chambers. So this fact alone led many times they would tie a rope to the priest's foot as he went in and have little bells so they could, oh, yeah, yeah, I still hear him. He's still moving. And then whenever the worst happened, they were able to simply pull him out so that way no one that went in to get him would die. They kept this place so, so pure. And, and the reason being is that they taught their little Jewish boys and girls that the Ark of the Covenant was the footstool of heaven. This is where God would step down on to come and be and dwell and give the Jewish people limited access to his presence. Also, they taught them that this was the place where heaven meets earth. There's an overlap in this very room. That's why we keep it sacredly, sacred and pure. Now, the Hebrews also give us records of what this temple curtain looked like. Josephus describes a 30-foot by 30-foot curtain, and on there is about a hand's breadth width, thick, thick, thick piece of fabric. And on it would be embroidered this panorama of heaven. And with that too, it would hang there just a single piece of cloth and testify to just God's greatness. But at the moment of Jesus' death, this is ripped from top to bottom. Nothing could pull this off other than God. They speculate that even a team of horses couldn't have pulled it in separate different ways. But it tells us, I think, three things. Three things that we should gather from this. First, is that just as the priests sometimes would tear their own robes in anguish at what they had heard or seen or experienced, so God tears his own robe at The death of his own son. Secondly, there's also been a change. This moment signifies a change on how God shares his presence with the world. It's not just for the ritually pure people and the ritually pure person in a limited fashion. The rituals are now null and void. They're not needed anymore. There's a new order and a new kingdom. Third, also, God's presence is no longer limited. Because that temple court is now open and the Ark of the Covenant can be seen, there's no curtain to protect God's holiness. It's out and about and sanctifying because of the work of Jesus Christ. The Ark of the Covenant is visible, and by by that, the final ritual is performed. God has made a way to us. The sign alone is astounding, and it proves that Jesus' death has changed many things. And in a very visible way, it shows that one man's action can actually take on the sin of the entire world. This is the one for the many. We can't do anything extra. Nothing extra is even needed. Only believe that his work is sufficient, that Christ's death for our sins was enough. The second thing that follows is actually a, a tremendous earthquake. And we're told that rocks split and tombs open. And here, Matthew, and unfortunately, only Matthew gives us a glimpse at one unique event or account of an event. And it's <laughs> rather unusual. Uh, read with me here in verse 52. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after the resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Yeah, I remember the first time that I read this, I think I had just seen a zombie movie. (laughs) Yeah, that did not help. Um, What's going on here? Uh, There's not a whole lot of information in history that, that lets us know what event this is talking about. And in scripture too is more or less silent on the matter. Matthew feels the need to say this and in this way. And so some scholars, of course, all like to debate and publish books and all that sort of stuff and give their theories. I'll kind of give you the brief rundown. Uh, and I think there's some importance to this discussion, but as you'll see, uh, some scholars take this event figuratively. Uh, it didn't happen in that way. Um, Or they say that Matthew is actually quoting some sort of religious creed that uses past tense language that's referring to an end times event about how later we will enter the holy city. Um, Maybe we we don't have a record of that creed though. And there's other creeds that we know we'd lost. Uh, Other scholars take this literally and they have a range of interpretations too. Uh, Some say that this is uh, the old testament saints that are being raised and they're being raised like Samuel was when Saul was asking for him at, at the witch of Endor and so Samuel's spirit comes to uh, to Saul and so in this way some of the old testament spirits are allowed to go and preach Christ's victory in the city after his resurrection for a short period of time uh, maybe uh, another one says, no, this is, these are people that in Jesus's ministry, and they're physically raised from the dead, just like Lazarus was, who later went and died, uh, and then would be raised again with us in the great resurrection of the saints. And then some say too that, uh, no, this is Old Testament saints, and, and they would have been ushered into heaven, raptured or ascended. It's just not talked about, not mentioned, no, no Christian account says it. Whatever it may be, the most accurate thing that we can say about this passage is the information that we have gives us no certainty of what exactly really went on. And that's okay. It's a mark of humility not to be overly dogmatic about these sorts of things, especially when scripture only mentions it with a couple passing verses. Uh, I really like what N.T. Wright says about this passage. He says, some stories... They're just so odd, they might have just have happened that way. And there's really no way of figuring it out, and that's probably where we should leave it. Uh, I think too, Matthew doesn't feel the need to elaborate, because he's giving highlight on Jesus' own resurrection. That's where we're supposed to be placing our focus anyways. And so with that, we'll head that direction, but if this discussion has left you any concerns at all, feel free to email me and in invent. Just send it to justin at gracechurchofofvilla.org make it really long yeah so as for our passage matthew shares with us uh all of these amazing signs and one centurion there among others scripture says uh, actually stops his mocking for a moment realizes what's going on, realizes that, yeah, no one can pull off an earthquake other than God himself. He says, surely this was the son of God. To say that, to say that as a Roman soldier, son of God, just that title alone, that they actually called the emperor son of God. All the way back to Julius Caesar when they started having emperors, they would call them son of God because that's how you appeal to your authority and why you don't question because, oh yeah, like the guys related to Zeus. And so for a Roman soldier to say that is treason. They could have him and the others with him killed because, oh no, this infectious disease of Christianity is starting to spread into our troops. And now they're leaving Caesar. They're thinking that someone's equal to Caesar. Roman centurion, he doesn't care. He says it anyways. And Jesus made his meaning clear. God made his meaning clear through these signs and Jesus's willingness to forsake his comfort in heaven and become forsaken by the father to pay for our sin so that we would not be forsaken. It's a fact here. We can't leave the room without. And we now have access to his presence. And as we look at our uh, next passage in our portion, we look at how we then should respond. How do we carry our cross Our fourth point here, we carry our crosses to share the rescuing love of Christ. After Jesus dies, there's kind of two groups that unfold. One is that of the women who remain present with Jesus, and with them, Joseph of Arimathea, and they immediately jump into action to help. The other is the enemies who attempt to rid themselves of Jesus and his Christians altogether, and that's the Romans and the religious authorities. Looking at the first group, Matthew mentions the crowd of women who had followed Jesus throughout his ministry, the names of the few that had stood with him to the end. And they had not only just witnessed and benefited from Christ's uh, rescuing love throughout his ministry, but they watched it on display every minute of it that day. And Matthew tells us that they didn't just watch. Afterwards, he repeats the same phrase that he used before. And they ministered to him. This is the same phrase used before when Jesus was in the wilderness and tempted, and he endured 40 days of of temptation, and he, he battled Satan and did not yield. And then afterwards, the angels come and ministered to Jesus after his temptation. Here, the women take on an angelic role. And though Jesus is not conscious of that, as he is dead... They honor him at their own risk, risking the Roman soldiers there that could harass them and berate them and get in their way and say, he's he's a capital punishment uh, uh, victim. That's our body. But no. And then we have Josephus, who, too, risks his own neck. He's a wealthy man, from what the scripture tells us. And he goes and he gets Jesus' body from Pilate. Pilate had every reason to throw Jesus' body in the city dump or to watch over it. But he says, no, you can have it, take care of it, do what you need to do. And in doing so, Josephus actually honors one Old Testament law in Deuteronomy, talking about those that die by capital punishment by hanging from a tree must be taken down before the Sabbath. With the Sabbath quickly encroaching, Josephus, Josephus Joseph of Arimathea, he sprints and gets to work and honors Christ. Now, I love that the gospel tells us about these men and women, but especially these women. Uh, In fact, every gospel uh, gives account of the women there. Every gospel, and sometimes they all agree on facts. I say agree. They all record the same facts. Others give kind of unique perspectives, but every gospel writer mentions these women who were there and who are with Jesus. And this is incredible for a historian of this time period to do because, A, women's word and actions are not worth ink according to the way they view women. If you're trying to give an illegal account, the word of a woman is less than the word of a man in court. And so if you are Matthew and you're trying to convince people of something crazy, like a guy died and rose again, you try to put in the best evidence for your time period, for your culture, that they would accept. And so you wouldn't waste time in talking about that witnesses of I, women, uh, eyewitnesses of women. It, it just wouldn't be what the, you would do in that culture. But they do it anyways. And I think it's in part just to honor and to challenge us to say that they are doing something so worthy and so right. Now for the others here... When we think about our own life and bearing our own cross, it's, it's the example of Christ, an example of these few uh, that show us really what it truly means to carry a cross. Carrying a cross is costly. It looks different for everyone. It did for the women and it did for Joseph that day, but we do so for the purpose of letting others know that they are not alone, and that they have not been abandoned they run to the wounded. And it's the carrying cross, this rescuing sense of God's love that that we put on, that we're willing to risk, we're willing to endure, because Christ was willing to risk and endure everything for us. And it's these women and Joseph here that perfectly embody that. I I know that this past year was brutal for many of us. Uh, My wife, she underwent two significant surgeries, one of which was a brain surgery. And because of what God has already done in some of your transformed hearts, we never felt alone. Uh, I was talking with her and it was like, there wasn't a week that went by last year, more than over last year, but it wasn't one week that went by that we did not just hear from someone checking in on us. We didn't feel abandoned. And that's to your credit. And I know that others of us um, have their hand of God stories as well. But Grace Church, do not stop. Do not stop. There are many more here in this room and in your life that need to know that God has not abandoned them, that they have not been forsaken, that he does have interest in saving them and lifting them out of their circumstances. And but even more important than just their circumstances, it's what's awaiting them in eternity. That he has made a way so that they will not be forsaken. And as we model rescuing love, We run to the places that God's love needs to go. It's not just for us to refer to and talk about stories, maybe at dinner parties of that one time that we made it through. No, it's to be spoken in front of and to, and the testimonies that we have and have endured are for those that are in need to know God's love. And so I challenge you this week to carefully pray through people in your life that might need to know a bit more about Christ's love for them and that God hasn't left them. He hasn't abandoned him. He's with them right now in their time of suffering and he knows well in his own flesh what it's like. With that challenge, Grace Church, I want us to also be careful. It's an easy road that we can always take and our rescuing love can sometimes become just easy love convenient love, as we feel like it, love. And that's not what is modeled here, and that's not what we're called to, and that's not what brings God praise. There's always an easy road, and, and then shortly after Jesus's own burial, the religious authorities take that, and Pilate takes that too. They try to hide, just suppress, and I'm going to wash our hands of the whole affair. This is just going to bring stability for us and our rule if we just make sure that this all just becomes quiet. So they post a guard in front of Jesus's tomb. So that way no one could get in and say anything about what happened. (laughs) That didn't work. But we, we too can sometimes side for inconveniences. Sometimes we too can put away Jesus. And sometimes we too can just take an easy road, but that's not what Jesus died for. We were bought and paid for with a price by the blood of Christ, and he emptied himself of everything. He became forsaken, and he gave us free and direct access to his presence, and it's our duty to carry that same rescuing love to others. So as we close, just in these last moments, God, he maybe has already brought a mind, a a name to mind, someone in your life that just needs to be reached out to, and that you have the ability to help them to do something or even just simply to be like the women a presence alongside Jesus in suffering maybe maybe it's someone at work someone in your family whatever it may be this week commit write down their name put it on your mirror or do whatever it is that, that you need to do to remind yourself maybe this sermon also brought to mind your own suffering and your own feelings of being forsaken. It's been a rough, rough time. Our nation has been shaken. And at times you may have wondered, is this really still a nation under God? Whatever it may be, run to scripture and be with his people. That's one way that you can remind yourself that you have not been abandoned. Sometimes, too, letting people know that you need help is the best thing that can be done so that way people know to help you. Whatever it may be, do that. Also read Psalm 22 and read how David, either envisioning Christ or in his own life, endured this and made it through, and now live to tell about it. So with that, Remind yourself of Christ's rescuing love this week and remind others. Pray with me. God Almighty, we thank you so much just for the testimony that you went through, that you put together, that you wrote down for us, for us to receive and not only just know about, but to feel and to model, to know your love on earth because you came to earth and endured this, Lord. We could never thank you enough. And with that, Lord, let this spur on our worship of you, of our admiration of you and our love for you, and help us take it this week to others. In your name we pray. Amen.